This is the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Steve Wood, back again with me, Baxter Drennan from Hall Booth and Smith. Baxter, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you did, did such a good job last time. And actually, the topic we're going to talk about today, we touched upon. And when I was thinking about new topics, you kind of were the first person that popped into my head to talk about this. And that topic being defense verdicts, right? Or defense wins of sorts. Yeah. You know, you and I talked initially on the podcast and Bill and I have talked before on the podcast about kind of praising the defense wins, but also changing the narrative as far as what is a defense win. I mean, because obviously in your profession, just a $0 verdict is not necessarily a win, correct? Well, it depends how much it costs to get you there uh, and what your client's goals are. Uh, it's funny, I had a, a conversation with a client this morning uh, that we could spend uh, a, a lot of money and uh, get a $0 verdict, or we could spend very little money and settle and, and walk away. And we talked about what their goals were in terms of uh, spending dollars versus uh, you know getting that true win and the vindication that comes from that. Yeah, and that definitely, I think that's something that's going to, we're going to weave throughout this whole podcast is kind of what is a win is really kind of in, in the eye of the beholder, right? In the eye of your client and having that conversation up front with them so that you at least have a sense for kind of what they think is a win too, right? Absolutely. Uh, it Just because, you know, the lawyer thinks it's a win doesn't necessarily mean it's a win for the client. Uh, so having having and understanding their expectations is important. Uh, I, I one time lost 87, a, a verdict of $87 that I'm still mad about, but my client was thrilled. So <laughs> making sure that, uh, you know, both, both parties, so to speak, are on the same page uh, is important, you know, all issues, but particularly, you know, what's a win look like. And I think another reason why you had mentioned, you know, you might be happy, but your client's not. But I think the other one, another reason that comes up often, and maybe you see it as well with, with younger attorneys where, they might get hit for a verdict and then they get really upset and then, you know, they, they might think they're not good or they might reconsider their profession or they might be down on themselves, but you know, what it was and that what occurred might actually not necessarily be a bad thing. Right. So persevering through that and not necessarily assuming that you're a failure. Oh yeah. Uh, early on, I came back to the office after a, a win, a, a $0 verdict. And uh, a more senior lawyer in my firm, who I, uh, a former firm that I respect immensely, uh, said that he had come back one day from a trial in the same uh, sort of circumstances. And one of the older lawyers looked at him and asked who tries the big cases in the firm. You know, the point being, if, if you're trying real cases, if your clients are trusting you with the hard cases, you, you're not going to win them all um, in, in the sense of the, the defense verdict, uh, the true zero. Um, but I think particularly now, understanding what you know what a win is that it's not always a zero it's sometimes it's uh forcing the other side to go to trial beating your uh you know the settlement demand beating an offer of judgment wh whatever it may be that there are there are wins uh, out there that aren't just zero verdicts uh and frankly there are, there are losses too and if you're going to be a trial lawyer you're going to have to take some of those too yeah, so I'm going to dive right into it. You know, you and I had talked and we kind of put together a list. So I'm just going to kind of walk through this list that we put together and, you know, feel free to, to jump in and offer up your thoughts on these. Sure. So the first one I have here is the plaintiff filing a motion for voluntary dismissal, right? 
Yeah, that's one that's one we talked about. And I, I had this happen recently in a, in a products case. But basically, we had uh, exchanged some initial expert information, put put the plaintiff on notice that we were going to defend the case, defend it vigorously. And they looked at the, the facts of the case and decided that uh, they didn't want to invest any more money. And so they dismissed their case. And, um, you know, it's one that we think very unlikely that they'll refile and uh, consider that a, a, a really big win. You know, we got rid of a case and we didn't have to spend uh, all the money that goes into it. How often do you how often do you see that, though? Or is that something that's pretty rare in this day and age? Or was it more common before and less common now? Or has it been pretty similar? I think it's pretty uncommon that a plaintiff's lawyer wouldn't try to squeeze some money out, out of us, um, whether it was really warranted or not. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that's one of the things we bring up when we talk with witnesses, when we prepare them for deposition, is we tell them, you know, don't get into persuasion mode. You know, don't try to convince the other side that they don't have a case because it's very rare that the attorney's going to say, oh, you know, you're right. We didn't have a good case. We're just going to close up shop and we're going to leave right here in the middle of the deposition. Very fair. Even if they know they don't have a good case anymore, they, they try to squeeze something out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, second one, motion for summary judgment granted. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. Um, one, you know, a, a trial win, you know, often, unless it's an appeal, uh, a, a trial win doesn't create a precedent that you can, you know, show to somebody else in a future case. The motion for summary judgment, usually you get an order in uh, that that you can show to the next plaintiff who tries the same thing. Uh, and so I think the, the, the precedential value, so to speak, that comes from those is, is always great and, and is a big win. Uh, in, in my firm at Hallboo Smith, if you win on a motion for summary judgment, and we'll talk kind of about this idea further, but we we call it the golden pen and a firm wide email goes out and you, you get a golden pen for winning a motion for summary judgment. So uh, we, we celebrate those for sure. Yeah, excellent. Third one, a mistrial caused by plaintiff's counsel. So uh, I think this one can work both ways. Um, usually if they're going for a mistrial, it's because you, you know, you're winning uh, in, in the trial. Um, but I, I had a, a client look at me one time and, and basically say anytime they walked out of the courthouse without uh, paying millions of dollars, it was a win. And so, um, I, you know, it, it, it beats the heck out of paying millions of dollars <laughs> if the plaintiff's <laughs> lawyer calls a mistrial. You know, usually you're coming back before the same judge. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a leg up uh, if the case gets retried for sure. And I'm assuming that's that's jurisdictional because, you know, we talk about the judicial hell holes and that I'm, I'm assuming that it depends in some jurisdictions what might be on the verge of a mistrial is going to be different than, say, another area. Oh, ab yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would that would definitely be uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. The, the cases where I've had it happen, uh, frankly, we didn't try them a second time. They, they went away for uh, nuisance value settlements. Uh, fourth, directed verdict. Uh, again, uh, I, this is something that's happened to me a few times, a couple small cases where I knew it was going away and we were happy with it. Um, with, a, with a group of folks a few years ago, we tried a multi-week products case and uh, right before closing arguments, the judge came in and uh, asked to revisit our motion for directed verdict. 
And we had, you know, we had gone through all the proof. We had done all the hard work of the case. It was just down to a close and he granted it. And we were excited for the, the win at the time, but we also knew uh, that he took away the jury from us and he, uh, he created an appeal, which uh, happened. And several years later, he finally was affirmed on appeal. But I, I think that's one of those things that um, you certainly can't feel bad about, but if you can get to the jury and, and get a verdict uh, there, it, it's better. Yeah, and that moves us into the, the next one, and that's zero dollars at trial. And obviously, this is the one that everyone hears about. A couple podcasts ago, I had Jim Feeney on from Dykema, and he was talking about a case that he had worked on you know, that was zero dollar verdict. And that's the thing that always tends to make the headlines, right? The, you know, Corporation X ended up getting a full defense verdict. Yeah. Uh, and the, the vindication that comes with the full defense verdict, uh, funny story, as you know, I, I moved over to Halbu Smith back in the fall and I've now been there for a little over six months, but a tradition of Halbu Smith, kind of like the golden pen, but the, the true defense verdict, the zero dollar verdict, uh, we have something called the belt and it is, uh, it, it started out, I think, a WCW wrestling belt that got bought at a client event and is now this rhinestone, gaudy uh, wrestling championship belt. And every true defense verdict in the firm, uh, the belt travels uh, from office to office. Uh, and so, you know, e even internally, we have a huge celebration for those wins externally with clients and things. Uh, you know, it's a big deal. Um, so no nothing better there. Uh, than the, the zero dollar verdict. Uh, but I will say, I don't think we can always get caught up in chasing the, the zero dollar verdict um, when uh, it, it can create a substantial amount of risk by not uh, addressing issues in your case. Um, I'll try to say it a little bit better. I was recently in a discussion with some lawyers about giving a number uh, on the defense side. You know, this anchoring concept you guys have covered at length and the pushback from uh some folks was we'll give a number and that, that uh, hurts our uh likelihood of getting a defense verdict and uh, I, I know i've heard you talk about the statistics on that and that argument statistically doesn't bear out with some of the studies that have been done but but chasing a zero and not talking about damages not giving a number uh can can really burn you um, whereas if you, you argued the damages and, uh, put a number out there, you might not get your pure defense verdict, but you, you've done a much better service for your client in the end. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself, sure. right. Is, is this whole defense bar feeling of, and some, not all of this, you know, apprehension about throwing numbers out that it should be zero or nothing. And to your point, giving some number is somehow conceding liability or conceding that you've actually done something wrong. But like you said, as, as we see, it's one, that's not necessarily the case. And then two, it's all about how you present it, right? You can't just go out there and throw out a number. You, you, you put some background to it and say, we don't believe you're going to get there, right? Because we believe that we've shown you that, you know, our, we have a strong case. The plaintiff hasn't met their burden, but if you do happen to get there, we're going to give you a little guidance on your damages. Absolutely. And that's, and that's exactly my point. And that's, again, that's one of those things you got to talk about with your client ahead of time, understand and know their goals. And there are certainly some cases, some clients that would say, no, it's more important for us to defend uh, and, and 
go all out to get a zero and you know that's a, a conversation you have but i i think um we as a defense bar have let you know chasing the zero get in the way of some much better results we could have had if we would have gave a number and thoughtfully argued damages yeah and your your belt i love your belt uh several years ago uh, we me and several of my friends would go out and we would go bowling every Tuesday and we had a WWE belt as well. And if you had the highest score at the end, you got the, you got the belt. So I tried to implement the same thing with my son's baseball team. And, and my son was mortified at the idea. So I'm going to have to let him know, Hey, even, even the big time attorneys, they share the belt too. So I, I love it. It's awesome. We, we do. Uh, one of my partners in our, our Arkansas office in Rogers uh, had a trial victory a couple of weeks ago. Uh, since then, there's been we've had three defense verdicts, full zeros. And uh, the, there was an email that went out today that basically said, hey, uh, you've got to get the belt sent on to the next group of folks. It's time to share that. Um, so, uh, we you know, it's coveted. Yeah, that's great. All right. Next on our list. Uh, a settlement that is agreeable or avoiding a nuclear settlement. Yeah, I, I've at least I've yet to meet the lawyer that only gets winning cases. Um, and I think a, a significant part of our job as defense lawyers is accurately evaluating cases, uh, doing it early on in the process, getting it to the client and then being prepared to stick with that number, whatever that evaluation is. And if, you know, if you've evaluated a case on the front end and, and told the client, you know, this is this is where this case should come in and you're able to beat that number in a settlement, then I, I think that's a victory. Again, it's making sure that your goals are in line with the client's goals um, and being able to settle uh, within those goals is is a win. Yeah. And as far as that on, on the topic of settlement, I mean, who who tends to be usually the one to initiate that conversation? Is it you approaching your client, your client approaching you, the plaintiffs approaching you kind of, where is that kind of uh, bore out as far as the procedure? Well, I, and I think it depends on the case and where that comes from, but um, and I think the bigger question is evaluating it, the case, doing it correctly and doing it early enough to where um, it can result in a, a benefit to the client. You know, you could if you you wait till the week before trial and you've done all the work and you evaluate the case and tell them what the risk is, and even if you can pay that number, you haven't really saved your client anything in terms of money or time or otherwise. Uh, if you can, you know, do that early in the case, and and get to the point of a reasonable settlement, you know, something that's within your evaluation in the first 120 days of the case, you've really done something for your client at that point. You've saved them money. You've saved them time. Um, and so, I, you know, is a settlement on the courthouse steps a win? Certainly there's, there's circumstance where it is, no, no question. Um, but a settlement that's, that's within uh, your evaluate, evaluation of the case in the first 120 days, to me, is a, a much more significant win. Excellent. Uh, next one, verdict that beat an offer at judgment. You had mentioned that earlier, too, when we were talking. Yeah, same kind of thing. Uh, and different, this is potentially jurisdictional. Different jurisdictions have different um, rules on offers of judgment. In Arkansas, where I primarily practice, uh, if you file an offer of judgment and you and the verdict comes back for an amount less than the, the offer, 
then the client can recover their costs uh, associated with the case. So not attorney's fees, but uh, expert costs, travel costs, copy, copy costs, hotel, you know, all, all those things. And it can result in a significant reduction of an award. Uh, I've had a, a couple cases with small awards where we beat the offer of judgment and actually it resulted in a payment to my client uh, as opposed to them having to pay the small judgment out. Um, and I've had a few where uh, we were able to negotiate at the end. We wouldn't move for our costs under the offer uh, so that, you know, we got stuff reduced down to a zero. And I, I think if you've evaluated your case, I, I like to do those early on. If we can't settle for where I've evaluated the case, so I file an offer of judgment. You do those early on, they're on the books and you can go beat that. Um, then I, I consider that a win. And I, I think in some ways, um, a, a, a more significant win than settling uh, for the number. If your client wants to show that they're you know, going to stick with their evaluation, that they're going to take a case to trial and they're not going to overpay, you know, filing the offer of judgment puts it out for the world to see where their line was and going and trying it and beating it shows that they're willing to draw, draw a line in the sand and try the cases that need to be tried. Yeah. I think that's another thing that's important too, that we talked about on the podcast as well. And Bill and I talk about in our speeches, is that defense mentality, right, of being willing to take things to trial and being willing to draw a line in the sand versus the idea that plaintiff's bar can just think that these corporations are an ATM machine, right, and you push on them a little bit and just wait for them to settle versus at some point you have to say enough is enough and we're going to take this to trial. Absolutely. And again, I, I don't want to harp on this, but I think that goes back to early evaluation of the case, properly evaluating and putting a number out there and saying, this is our line in the sand. You can settle for it now, or we're going to go to trial. Um, but that's, that's where we are. And if you don't back down from that, it doesn't take very many times of drawing that line before, you know, the plaintiff's lawyers believe you and act accordingly. Yeah. Uh, next one, less than expected, right? You talked about your your offer and your assessments, and then you go to trial and then you actually get a verdict that's less than what you had off, uh, initially thought. Yeah, uh, it's same same kind of thing as beating an offer of judgment or uh, whatever. But if, if, if you've evaluated your case and you do better than your evaluation, um, you know, maybe it caused your client to question your evaluation, but uh, <laughs> uh, actually I've had that happen. But, you know, you, I think that's a win. Again, some cases, uh, there's not a path to a zero verdict. Um, and, you know, doing better than expected on a verdict. I, I, I don't know any reason why you wouldn't consider that a win. Yeah. And then the, the last one on the list and, you know, may not necessarily be the, the most favorite one is the less than demand, but not less than expected. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, different people have uh, differences of opinions on the value of the case. That's why we have trials and sometimes the answers in the middle uh, I still feel better about being closer to my number and not at the plaintiff's number. And, you know, regardless of where I evaluate it, they get a say in that too. And, um, you know, if you beat their valuation of the case, their bottom dollar settlement amount, um, I, again, I think that's a win. It's not the, it's not the best thing. Um, it's maybe a B plus win, but it's still, if you couldn't have walked away selling the case for less than that, uh, you've done better. Yeah. And you've, you've mentioned it several times, and I think, you know, it bears uh, talking about a little bit more, but, you, you know, talking about early intervention, early intervention, early intervention. I think that's probably one of the key things that we see as well as far as 
getting you to these places and having successful outcomes is that early intervention, right? You can't wait till a month or two months before trial to start, you know, calling in us and, and having us look at trial prep for your witnesses who, you know, bombed in their depositions, right? It's going to have to be on the front end if you want to be successful. Absolutely. Uh, if, if there's anything I've learned, particularly over the last few years, of studying the nuclear verdict, or as my partner, John Hall, who's been on this, the aberration verdict. Um, if there's anything I've learned about how to avoid those, it's doing the preparation and the work on the front end and not waiting until the week before trial to, to try to avoid it. You've got to do that from the, from the jump in the case. And that includes evaluating your case correctly on the front end. Um, you know, doing an early evaluation is a hallmark of uh, Hall Booth Smith. How, how we run cases, but it, it lets you uh, or lets the client draw a line in the sand uh, in a place that's accurate and, and make a true decision. Are we going to try the case or not based on solid information, solid advice and, and done at a time period to where you still have a reasonable choice to make as to the cost of going to trial? You know, if it, it, again, I said this earlier, but it doesn't do you a whole lot of good it, it, to draw a line in the sand at the very end and where all the costs have been incurred. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do best by your clients, you give them a choice on the front end. Right. And it takes a lot of uh, leverage away from you too, right? If you go to settlement negotiations and you're basically, as, as you know, we would like to say, you're, you're starting from when you're five touchdowns down to all of a sudden then start attacking and expect yourself to all of a sudden bury yourself out of a hole. Sure. And, and as you know, some of the worst cases, they don't get bad at the trial. They get bad in the depositions and you can't dig yourself out of that hole. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, that's key. And I think that's important as far as addressing that. And are you a strong proponent up front too of talking to your clients about, you know, getting focus groups, getting mock trials, getting witnesses prepped and doing all that, you know, right I, off the jump? I, I talk to them as early as possible. And, and it's got to be the case that warrants that. But yeah, I talk to them as early as possible. As you know, we get a lot of pushback on those things. Uh, the, the higher the profession of the, of the witness, um, I guess at the very top, they usually are receptive to having help. Uh, the kind of the, the professional is just one rung below that, thinks that they've got it covered and they don't need help. Uh, which is, is difficult. Sometimes they look at me and say, you're the lawyer. That's, you know, why can't you do that? And, you know, I say, well, I'm not a PhD psychologist. That's, that's why I can't do that. Um, but it, there, there is some pushback, but I think, uh, I think you have to make sure your clients know those options are available and why you want to do that as quickly as you can. Uh, and I think to your point, when you were talking about you're not a PhD psychologist and I'm not an attorney either. So I always make it a point to always talk about how it's kind of a relationship, right? When I go in and I work with witnesses, I talk about here's kind of all the psychological errors that you're going to make, but there's legal errors that you're going to make as well. So that's why you have the legal side and you have the psychology side. And I think, you know, one can't really operate successfully without the other. So I don't think it's an issue of, and I think it's a perception sometimes too, of like somehow we're going to come in and do your job and do things that, you know, that you could have done, but there's, it's different, right? Like I can't write a brief as good as you can. And I couldn't, you know, go to trial as good as you could just the same as, as the psychological aspects you couldn't probably do as well as me. So I, 
I think it's a key as well to understand that this isn't one replacing the other. It's more of a team helping to increase the chances of getting a verdict that's favorable for the client. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you, you've got some perspective that I don't have from, from uh, you know, being the psychologist, but also just in length of career. But I, I think the, if the reptile theory did something good uh, for the defense bar, it's a recognition that uh, of, of the overlap, that the psychology is an important aspect of uh, preparing a case for trial and litigating a case, and that, that the lawyer alone can't do that. That if you face uh, a real risk in a case, you're going to need uh, some assistance uh, in the, the psychological aspect of it, or at the very least, you have to recognize it. You know, we talked about anchoring a little bit earlier, but if you put your head in the sand and ignore that, that psychological principle, um, you're going to get burned. There's just no doubt about it. It's, it's, not, um, it's not something that you can ignore or avoid. Uh, it's a real thing. And if you, you don't recognize uh, that psychological principle and others, uh, you're going to lose cases you shouldn't lose. Yeah, and I think, you know, with the reptile theory as well, they've, they've gotten smarter, right? P plaintiff's bar is always adapting. And we talk about, you know, defense bar communicating as well and increasing the communication. But the plaintiff's bar has gotten really good at communicating. And now what I'm seeing, and you're probably seeing it too, is, it's really kind of few and far between where we're hearing these hot button words of unnecessary risk or needlessly in danger. The words that come straight from the reptile manual because it, it's really easy to prep witnesses on that because you just listen for those words. So I think the plaintiff's bar has gotten smarter to disguise those terminology and it's still the risk, safety, danger, harm, but it's built in differently. So that's a little bit more subtle than in, in your face, which like you said, leads to more prep that needs to be done on the part of the witness to make sure they can identify those things and understand them versus like the very obvious terms that used to be used by the reptile theory attorneys. And it took us years to, to share the questions that we were seeing uh, that, you know, told you that the reptile was coming out. Um, and I think we have to adapt just as quickly as the plaintiff's bar if, if they're asking, you know, as you said, a new uh, type of question to get to that same issue, you know, we have to share that amongst uh, uh, the defense bar so that people know that's coming. Uh, you know, it's a nice thing about being in a larger firm is you, you hear some of those trends and things before you're the guy sitting there uh, defending a deposition <laughs> uh, and having it happen to your client, you know, for the first time. Yeah, that's, that's never a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, well, Baxter, I appreciate you coming on. It was good to see you again. Good to, good to get you back on and talk about this topic that you and I kind of been talking offline about. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, once again, anybody wants to get a hold of you, how they get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, they can call me at the office, 501-319-6996 uh, or B-D-R-E-N-N-O-N -N at hallboothsmith.com. Uh, Love to hear from them. Excellent. All right, Dr. Steve Wood here. Go to courtroomsciences.com all of our blogs, podcasts, all the information that you need up there about litigation psychology can be found on the website. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.